We come to the halfway point in the book of Job, that is in terms of chapters. We've covered the first 21 of 42 chapters. The book really changes in the second half, but not until Job's friends have had their last say. Um, but only Eliphaz and Bildad will speak, and Bildad will have hardly anything to say. We'll see the Lord willing next Sunday. They seem to have exhausted their arguments. Job will answer them, first of all, in chapters 23 and 24, and then we have an extended response in chapters 26 to 31. And then we will hear from a new character, someone we've not known about up to this point, a man named Elihu, who speaks at length, chapters 32 to 37, and then God speaks. God, who has been silent, at least to Job, speaks in chapters 38 to 41, and it's just magnificent chapters. The pace changes somewhat as we hear this last gasp from his friends, and we move on to a final resolution. In coming to this part of Job, I am reminded of something that happened some years ago. Um, I told my mom that there is this movie she should see called The Shawshank Redemption. And so we rented the DVD, which is something people used to do, and so we could watch it together. And about halfway through the movie, my mom turned to me and asked, does this get any better? And if you know the movie, the first half and actually more are, are rather grim. I mean, it's almost difficult to watch, but the last part of the movie is, in fact, rewarding. There is redemption. And this is how I see the second half of the book of Job. But first, more from his friends. And Eliphaz, the, probably the oldest of the three friends, because he speaks first, is almost unrecognizable now in his third speech to Job. And in this, he directly challenges and accuses Job. You know, up to this point, it's like, maybe you've done something. Well, now he says, this, these are the sins that you are guilty of committing. He's really frustrated that he hasn't gotten anywhere with Job. You know, sort of maybe beating around the bush. And now Eliphaz just lays it on the line. These are the terrible sins you have committed. The speech has three parts here in chapter 22. First of all, the accusations against Job, the first 11 verses. Then a discourse on God's activity or his interest in human affairs, verses 12 to 24. And then finally, he calls Job to repent. All three sections deal with one basic issue, one basic question. Is God interested in humanity at all? Spoiler alert, Eliphaz's answer, amazingly, is no. God is not interested in humanity at all. First, the accusations against Job, verses 1 through 11. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man be benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. 
though you were a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on it, and you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. As with his other two speeches, Eliphaz opens with a question. And here the question is, in fact, is God interested in the righteousness of an individual? If you look at verses 2 and 3, can a man be a benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would give the Almighty if you were righteous? For Eliphaz, the answer is, yeah, no, you, not at all. This, God is not interested in how righteous you are. And we know, because we've read the first two chapters of Job, that Eliphaz is completely wrong. That God, in fact, did take pleasure. He took personal delight in the integrity of his servant Job. He tells the accuser, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But Eliphaz says, no, God doesn't notice our righteousness. He does notice our wickedness. So if you do something good, God doesn't care. He's not interested. But if you do something you shouldn't do, then God is there. He's going to be on your case. As a child who misbehaves gets attention, but oftentimes is ignored when he or she is well behaved, that's how Eliphaz sees God and humanity. So God's not really interested. And now he turns on Job, Eliphaz does, and begins to accuse him of various crimes and sins. And we really have to wonder, how did Eliphaz get to this point? Clearly, at the beginning, this is not how he regarded Job. Uh, if there's any evidence of crimes, this should have come up in those first seven days and seven nights when they just sat there in silence. But we read that no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. But now, Eliphaz does a 180 and in fact says, it is for... Um, is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are your sins not endless? And then we have a list of them. He exploits the destitute. He, he is, uh, displays inhumanity toward those in need. He takes other people's lands. And he has disregard for the defenseless. Two things to note about this list. First of all, Job will answer this in chapter 31. He will go one by one. Uh, if my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. Job will answer this, not right away, but he will later on in chapter 31. Secondly, these are sins that break God's law. I, I don't think that Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're not really a nice person, okay? Rather, he is saying, you have sinned against God. What you have done, in fact, is wrong. You have exploited the destitute. God tells Moses that they are to be open-handed to those who are in need. They are to loan without collateral. Eliphaz charges that Job, in fact, has, in fact, exacted collateral with any, without any basis, without any legal basis for doing this. Job has broken God's law. He's been 
he has not been kind toward those who are in need. Verse 7, you gave no water to the weary and you withheld food from the hungry. And one might say, well, you know, this, this, just, this doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that you're mean. Um, but no, it is in fact a violation of God's law. In Deuteronomy 15, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, God says, to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. And then you may remember in Matthew 25, when people stand before God in judgment, he's like, I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. And he sends them from his presence. Verse 8, there is a misappropriation of other people's lands. Uh, privilege brings with it responsibility. The more privileged, the greater the responsibility. And Eliphaz accuses Job of not living up to his responsibility. That he is a very wealthy man, and yet he has abused those around him, those who are poor. And then verse number 9, he has disregarded the defenseless. The widows, the fatherless, the alien. As David says in Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. These are not small, petty sins. This is not someone who's just in it to make a quick buck or someone who wants to get richer and richer and richer. This is someone who is violating God's laws. And that's why Job is suffering all of these things. Verse 10, that is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. Something that we need to remember here, that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, devotion to God cannot be separated from how we treat other people. The two great commandments are we are to love the Lord our God and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is in loving our neighbors that we demonstrate our love for God. And as I said in Matthew 25, uh, Jesus really makes an emphatic point of this. This is the last public teaching, as Matthew records it. This is the last thing Jesus says publicly in his teaching. And he talks about feeding the hungry, giving something to drink to the thirsty, inviting strangers in, clothing those who need clothes, looking after the sick, and visiting those in prison. This is how we show that, in fact, we are the people of God, that we love God. And he accuses Job and I would say without any evidence whatsoever that this is what he has done. Now in verses 12 to 20, Eliphaz discusses God's dealings with humanity. Look if you would, verse 12. Is not God in the heights of heaven? And see how lofty are the highest stars. Yet you say, what does God know? Does he judge through such darkness? Thick clouds veil him so he does not see us as he goes about in the vaulted heavens. Will you keep to the old path that evil men have trod? They were carried off before their time, their foundation washed away by a flood. They said to God, leave us alone. What can the Almighty do to us? Yet it was he who filled their houses with good things. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. The innocent mock them, saying, surely our foes are, are destroyed and fire devours their wealth. Eliphaz turns from accusing Job to now instructing him about how God deals with human beings. And he begins by speaking of God's high and exalted position. 
And then he counters by what he imagined Job's position to be. Does God know what's happening on this planet? To go back to the original question, does he even care? Eliphaz, as he understands it, is that Job is saying that God is too distant. God is too far away to know about the affairs of the earth, to concern himself with one man's problems. Eliphaz fears that Job's view of transcendence has confused him on the matter of God's eminence. That is to say that God is not only above us outside of creation, but that he is in creation at all times. Job is not concerned that God made the world and has now left it on its own course, but rather it seems that God is inconsistent, somewhat erratic in how he does things. Eliphaz points out that in the past, and here he may be in fact referring to the great flood uh, of Noah, that wicked men thought that God didn't know what they were doing, and that if he did, he's like, what can God do about it? What can the Almighty do? We would say, well, whatever he wants. In verses 19 and 20, Eliphaz speaks of how the righteous rejoice at the destruction of the wicked. This is to prepare Job now for the last part of Eliphaz's speech. Look, if you would, at verses 21 to 30. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir will be or to the rocks in the ravines. Then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Surely then you will find delight in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You will pray to him and he will hear you and you will fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done and light will shine on your ways. When men are brought low and you say, lift them up, then he will save the downcast. He will deliver even one who is not innocent, who will be delivered from the cleanness of your hands. The passage seems rather straightforward. Eliphaz says to Job, submit to God, be at peace with him. And again, he seeks, as the other friends have, and as Eliphaz has done earlier, to entice Job to repent because of the benefits There will be prosperity, wisdom, joyful living, security, power and prayer in verse number 28, and authority and intercession. In doing this, we've seen that Eliphaz is in fact satanic. He is siding with the accuser. Because remember what Satan said? Yeah, is it for nothing that Job fears God? Take away what he has and he will curse you. Eliphaz wants to motivate Job to repent for the benefits that he will get from God. We are called to worship the true God because he is the true God. He is the creator, not for some benefit or benefits we might get out of it. Unfortunately, for many, and perhaps we've been guilty of this, we have presented the Christian faith in this way, that if you come to Christ, your life will be better. I guess it depends on what you mean by better, but oftentimes it's sort of an enticement. You need to come to Christ and then all your problems will go away. 
I said that the question in this chapter is, is God interested in humanity at all? And so far we've seen that God is not interested, apparently, in the righteousness of the individual. And it seems, at least how Eliphaz sees Job seeing it, that God is really not, does not know what's happening on this planet. But this last section, how does this fit in with, does God really care, or is he interested in humanity at all? Because if you read it, if you read these verses carefully, Eliphaz is putting it all on Job. There is no word of grace here of God acting, of God being interested. It's all on Job. If Job does the right things, then God will bless him. God will give him certain things. But otherwise, God's really not interested. We are to repent. Let's be very clear about that. But it is God's grace that brings us to a place of repentance. We don't start the process. God does. But for Eliphaz, God's really not that interested until we do certain things. Eliphaz presents God almost as a divine vending machine. That if we, in fact, put in our repentance, we will get out the things that we are looking for. Eliphaz and his friends have no place for grace, as we have seen. Everything is black and white. It's cause and effect. Bad things happen to bad people. So simply repent, make your peace with God, and all will be well. Eliphaz and the friends have not dared to tackle the issue, what if Job has done nothing wrong? Because that's a scary proposition. What if Job has not done anything wrong, and yet all these things have happened to him? Job seems afraid to say, I'm sorry, Eliphaz seems afraid to say, I don't know why all these horrible things have happened to you. Three scary words, I don't know. And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar will not say these words. Eliphaz is so wrong in many ways in this chapter to think that the obedience of God's people does not bring him any pleasure. But I wonder, do we think that our obedience brings God any pleasure? Or do we think only of disobedience? Like when a child misbehaves, that then God pays attention to us. But otherwise, it's like, yeah, you know, Jesus paid it all, he's taking care of it. Um, and if we do good things, sort of a shrug of the shoulder. No, God is interested. We see that in the first two chapters. Have you considered my servant Job? Eliphaz is right to acknowledge that God is transcendent, but he seems to forget that God, in a very personal way, deals with the world. One author has written it this way, tell me how lofty God is for you, and I'll tell you how little he means to you. That could be a theological axiom. The lofty God has been lofted right out of my private life. It's certainly remarkable, but it is true. God has become of concern to me only because he has made himself smaller than the Milky Way. Only because he is present in my little sick room when I gasp for breath or understands the little care I cast on him. 
He concerns me because Jesus Christ takes my speck of anxiety and my personal guilt upon himself. God is transcendent, and we worship a transcendent God, but he's also eminent. He's here with every aspect of our being, every difficulty, and every act of obedience. He is there with us. Job is going to respond in chapters 23 and 24. We'll only look at chapter 23 today. And he ignores his friends. He ignores the accusation. He rejects the summons to repentance. He wants peace with God. But why should he fake a repentance when he's done nothing wrong that he knows of? It's like someone being pardoned for something they have not done. If you admit your guilt, you'll be pardoned. Well, I didn't do this. Job has not done anything that he's aware of for which he should repent and be reconciled to God. He wants peace with God. He wants God to speak to him. He knows, and his friends don't seem to know, that he cannot have peace with God by seeking God for the blessings he might bestow. No, Job wants to seek God for God himself. It seems that Job is now convinced that the only way to make things right, to improve his situation, is to argue his case before God. That's what he has done. That's what he's going to do in these next two chapters. In chapter 23, we have confidence. Job is, in fact, confident of his innocence and that if he was given a fair trial, he would be able to prove his innocence. Chapter 24, which the Lord willing we'll look at next week, he gives his complaint. And here he speaks of injustice in the world. And not simply himself, but the innocent in the world who in fact suffer greatly. By way of introduction just to these two chapters, I think we have two options as we read these chapters. And actually as we read most of Job's responses. Okay. Either we see him, one, as arrogant, a man who is alienated from God and yet is convinced that he is, in fact, innocent. And he's willing to take on God himself. He's, come on, let's go to court. I will argue against you that he's arrogant. Or secondly, our second option is to see that Job is on a pilgrimage of faith. One could even say, for us, he is a pioneer. He has, in fact, gone ahead of us on this pilgrimage of faith. I've mentioned at different points in the series that Job's responses to his friends' criticisms, which are supposedly comfort, are, in fact, his responses show a progress. That in fact, he is on a pilgrimage and he's making progress. It begins with anger in chapter 6 and 7. And then we have despair in chapters 9 and 10, terror at God's absence and his presence in chapters 12, 13, and 14, hope in chapters 16 and 17, and chapter 19, the wonderful, my, I know that my Redeemer lives, the hope of the Redeemer. And then in chapter 21, criticism of how God runs the world. Here in chapter 23, he longs for communion with God. The first two verses, then Job replied, even today my complaint is bitter, my, his hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. One might argue, Damon, uh, I, I, 
I reject your analysis that in fact he's on a journey or on a pilgrimage because it doesn't seem like he in fact is making any progress at all. I would suggest to you that the journey of faith is a struggle of contradictions. And yet, in the midst of this pilgrimage in which we might take two steps forward and three back, there will be flashes of grace in which God gives us insight. And for that brief moment, we see things clearly, but then we slip back into darkness. So Job begins in verse 2 by confessing that he is still a rebel who is bitter and powerless before God. His question is, where is God? And I suggest that our first and maybe second instinct on reading this passage is to find Job guilty of great arrogance. This is just a very arrogant and proud man. We would not say he has any faith. In part because we tend to think of, in our culture, we tend to focus on product, the end result, rather than the process. We're much more comfortable with the idea of having faith. You must have faith rather than the act of believing. We live in a consumer capitalist society. We are much more product oriented. We're not concerned about the process. You know, we like sausage, we don't want to see how it's made, okay? We just want the final product. And technology allows us to skip the process. We, we get the product at the end. So we face a double dilemma. The idea of pilgrimage for most modern people, I would say at least modern Americans, is so foreign, it's so inefficient, it's a waste of time. Let's take shortcuts, let's get to the destination. And the idea of a perfect or completed or complete faith, yeah, in the modern world, I think a lot of people have embraced that idea. The modern age has affected the church that the illusion of perfect faith or completed faith has been embraced and the idea of the journey, the pilgrimage has been set aside. Job is on a pilgrimage. He is on a journey. We may not like it because it's not a straight line. We may not like it because it seems like it's a long line. We wish he would get to the point. Okay, let's get to chapter 42. Okay, let's, let's get to the end of the book. And the reality is he has to go through this struggle. He is on this pilgrimage. But let's say for the sake of argument, you don't live in 2020. You're not a child of this age. And you do embrace the model of the pilgrimage. Do you recognize that it's not a straight line? It isn't from point A to point B. That there in fact are setbacks, there are detours, there are times in which we seem to lose our way. Pilgrimage is not a straight line. You may know of some who have left the Christian faith because there were setbacks, because there were episodes of darkness, episodes of unbelief. There were times when they raged against God. They didn't have perfect faith. 
And guess what, folks? Look at Job. And in Job, this is what we see. Someone who has setbacks, someone who has unbelief at times, who rages against God, but he continues in faith in the journey. Some have left the faith because they fail to appreciate that, in fact, it is a journey. It's not a product. It's a process. Job is on the journey, and he, will not le- he won't turn back. He won't let go. He is tenacious. There are four points here in chapter 23. And the verses dealing with them aren't all in the same session, section, so bear with me. The first is, where is God? Look at verse 3 and then verses 8 and 9. If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. The question, where is God, is often asked in the midst of suffering. But I think Job has insight that oftentimes we lack is that the absence of God does not necessarily mean alienation from God. He wants to seek God's presence, but the absence is deeply troubling. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, which he wrote after the death of his wife, he writes these words, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting, double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. What what does this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Indeed, there may be times when God seems absent or at least so very far away. The omnipresent God who is everywhere in creation is absent from me in my need. In Psalm 139, David wrote, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Okay, David, we can't hide from God. But it seems apparent that there are times when God is hidden from us. Times when we need him most. One author puts it this way. While God haunts those who try to escape him in order to lead them to an awareness of truth, he becomes imperceptible to his own in seasons of adversity in order that they may search for him, stretching their faith. God's distancing himself from Job's consciousness reflects his trust in Job. That is, by hiding from Job, he allows Job to assert his innocence as a venture of genuine commitment to God. 
To those who run from God, God goes after them and tries to bring them back. To those who are his people, it seems that God abandons them. But as the author puts it, he reflect, this reflects his trust in Job. Job needs God. He wants to make his case before God, but he doesn't know where God is. He knows by faith that God exists, but where is God? The second part of this chapter is, I want to make my case. And we've seen this uh, in other uh, speeches from Job, verses 4 to 7 and 11 and 12. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. There an upright man could present his case before him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Again, we must ask, is Job speaking in arrogance, or is he speaking with faith? Some find arrogance at the very suggestion that he could make a good argument before God, that he's a good man. Look at verses 11 and 12. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured his words, the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. What if it isn't arrogance, though? What if, in fact, this is great faith? Believing that he and God will understand one another. That's not a small matter. Not at all. Believing that living according to God's steps, commands, the words of his mouth, is in fact the way one should live. This is a statement of faith. Job believes that God will be fair in any encounter. In light of what Job has suffered, uh, this is real faith on Job's part. He believes that God will not use his great power to an unfair advantage. That God is fair. He is almighty, yes, but he is also fair. And he believes, as we will see in verse number 10, that God knows Job and his character, what kind of man he is, even if Job does not make his case. I think we should see Job as one who believes, not as one who is arrogant. The third part of this chapter is in verse number 10, what God is doing but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Even though Job doesn't know where to find God, verses 8 and 9, Job believes that God knows exactly where Job is. God has full knowledge of all of Job's thoughts and actions. As a result, after God has tested him, Job will come out as gold. That is gold purified by fire. Job will come forth purified in character. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Does Job know what's going on? That this is a test to see whether or not he will curse God? Why would Job need his character purified? I think this is an instant, an instance, and we've seen several of these in Job's life, in which he has a flash of insight in which he sees something perhaps beyond his complete understanding. He knows that something is true. The reason for his suffering is hidden from Job, but he believes that God has a purpose 
And his confidence tells him that the purpose of God is good. If our suffering has a purpose, and oftentimes we don't know what it is, by God's grace we should endure. But suffering isn't easy because one never knows what's coming up next. And this is the fourth and final point. Verses 13 and to 17, God is to be feared. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. Job's self-confidence is tempered by a meditation on God's sovereignty. When he contemplates God's justice in relationship to his obedience, Job is bold and he is confident. But when he turns to the holiness of God, fear overwhelms him. So we find Job going back and forth, back and forth. And it's like, Job, could you be more consistent? Listen, this is part of the pilgrimage, the journey of faith. God is one. He stands alone, he tells us. He does whatever he pleases. And then he says, this is why I'm terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. I think Job has responded appropriately. But he's responding to what Eliphaz said. And Eliphaz answered to the question, does God really, is he concerned with what's going on in the human race? His answer is no. God's only concerned when we do bad things. And if you allow me, I'll mention two different movies here that present two visions of God. The first one is the Monty Python movie, The Holy Grail. One might say perhaps not the best choice. But God is pictured there as one who's really put out with people. Oh, don't grovel, he says. If there's one thing I can't stand, it's people groveling. And don't apologize. Every time I try to talk to someone, it's, I'm sorry for this, and forgive me for that, and I'm not worthy. This is a vision that many people have of God. The other movie, by contrast, is Chariots of Fire, the story of Eric Little, or Lytle. He was asked that while he was, he was preparing to be a missionary to return to China, that he was spending time training for the Olympics. You know, if you're going to be a minister, why are you running? Why are you going to be in the Olympics if you're going to be a missionary? And he replied, when I run, I feel his pleasure. This is someone who feels the delight of God. Now, if you consider my suggestion that we may not have Eliphaz, Bildad, so far as in our life, friends who are attacking us, this in fact may be an internal struggle in which we attack ourselves and we question what God is doing in our life. And so which vision of God do you hold in your heart? Is it the Monty Python vision? Stop groveling. 
thoughts. You know, forgive me for this, forgive me for that. There is a place for that, by the way. Or do we have a sense that God delights in our obedience? We might be scared to go in that direction because we might be filled with pride. Well, that's always a danger, okay? We are, by nature, sinners. We will fall into sin. But what is our vision of God? Is he concerned at all with what's going in our lives, going on in our lives? Eliphaz would say, no, he's not. Unless you do something bad, then he's, you know, it's cause and effect. And in many ways, God's not really involved. It's simply cause and effect. You do bad things, bad things will happen to you. But if you put in some repentance in the divine, the celestial vending machine, God will give you all of these material blessings. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 103, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. One can imagine a child drawing a picture or coloring in a coloring book, producing a squiggle of lines, random bursts of color that really don't make any sense. And yet the parents delight. It's a beautiful picture. Our obedience at best is squiggles on a piece of paper. We're trying to paint a picture. And yet God delights in that. And Eliphaz and his friends don't seem to see that. God is so delighted with the obedience and faithfulness of his people. He knows how we are formed. He knows that we are fragile. He knows that we are sinners and yet he delights. Eliphaz is wrong, and so often we are too in our vision of God. Looking ahead to the last chapter of the book, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Is God interested in what's happening in your life? Eliphaz would say, no, unless you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. Does God delight in your obedience? Eliphaz would say, no, doesn't profit God anything. Why would he care? The reality is, yes, he does. He delights in his children. Have you considered my servant Job? Let's pray together. Our Father, we freely confess that our thoughts of you are often wrong, often too small, sometimes too big, that we think you're not interested in the day-to-day -day details of our lives, that you're only interested when we do something we shouldn't do, when we misbehave, and you want to come and spank us, you want to correct us, chastise us. We forget that you delight in your children 
as you delighted in Job. We may not know why things happen in our lives, but we should remember that we are on a journey, on a pilgrimage. There are dark days, there are beautiful days. There are days in which we go backwards, days in which by your grace we make some progress. May we learn from Job that faith is in fact to be living. It is a process, not a product. In a culture that prizes efficiency, your ways oftentimes are very inefficient. But you are the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You are our Father, our dear Father, Abba. You love us as your children, and you're with us every step of the way. We may not have a sense of that from time to time, but you're always there. May we not fall into the trap of Eliphaz and think that you're really not interested in the small things even the big things of our lives. Help us to remember that you love us and you proved your love by sending your son. If for a moment we would doubt that you loved us, remind us of the Lord Jesus. That is the highest proof of your love. We thank you for this day, the Lord's Day, the beginning of a new week. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we walk through the world in this coming week, this pilgrimage of faith. May we look to you with faith, active faith, believing that you know what is best. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.